And welcome to episode 179 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the nighttime sky and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. And in this episode, we'll talk with Mark Radici again from Refreshing Views. How have you been, Mark? Yeah, we're all good, thank you. Yeah, getting enjoying the, the return of the winter skies. It's now getting dark at a reasonable hour. Good. Good stuff. So uh, just before we uh, hop into things, can you just, uh, you know, we, we spoke, uh, I think, a couple months ago now, and maybe you can just refresh our listeners about what Refreshing Views is. And uh, yeah, and, and then we'll start uh, start our conversation. Oh, well, hello. All. My name is Mark, Mark Radici. I'm a, an amateur astronomer based, in, based near Salisbury in southern England and literally a stone's throw from Stonehenge. And I started making YouTube videos uh, earlier this year in April and sharing those on refreshing views. Um, but what I really love is getting out under the night sky. And we're so lucky to have our hobby where we can go out and see these wonderful things from craters on the moon, the planets of the solar system and out into deep space and even intergalactic space. And what I try and do is, is share that love of astronomy and how I go about observing the night sky. Very cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we kind of had sort of, I think, I think you and Shane had struck up a conversation at one point and there's, there's really not that, that many, um, people who, who are doing, uh, as much about just visual observing these days. So there's only sort of a limited number of, of YouTube channels and podcasts and that sort of thing. A lot of folks who are, who are doing, uh, this kind of astronomy medium, uh, are talking about more like astrophysics or different things of, of that nature, different aspects of astronomy. Um, but we're, we're really just, just people who regular people who just go out and look. And I think that has a certain appeal to, uh, to some folks. I think you've found that niche as well. Yeah, good totally stuff. agree. Oh, sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, yeah, good stuff. We might have a bit of a delay there, but, uh, yeah, we'll just roll with it. I think, I think you said you did power outage right before we went live. <laughs> Well, it's the joys of living in, uh, you know, 21st century Britain, having power cuts and storm. We've had a few storms over the last few weeks that have taken some of the power lines down. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Okay. So just before we uh, we started up today, I had a, an interesting email from you about uh, getting into the, the local paper and you'd sent along um, these beautiful photos and it's really hard to describe. Uh, can we can we tweet these out? Is that possible? Yeah, Mark? of course you can. That'd be lovely. Yes, please do. And just to describe them very briefly, if anybody's ever seen a photo of Stonehenge, you kind of understand what that uh, circle of, of uh, megaliths or monoliths or whatever they're called uh, look like. And Mark has captured this beautiful uh, series of shots and, and sort of the, the sort of main shot, I guess, is one uh, where you can see Stonehenge kind of center bottom right. And then you can see the moon. Jupiter, Saturn, and Venus all kind of sort of arcing um, above and kind of terminating uh, with Venus uh, above the last stone. And you can almost see some color in the sky. It was that evening. And uh, you can see like a little bit of green on the grass and then uh, some of the colors in the atmosphere. And this is just a beautiful, beautiful shot, Mark. Congratulations on getting it. Oh, I think you've gone to mute. <laughs> That would teach me to clear my throat before I started speaking. So, <laughs> no yeah, go for it. So my friend Lawrence and I, we we live in the you know next village from each other, and we drove up to Stonehenge, which is only about the 10, 15-minute drive from the house. And we parked up this little uh, public area where you can get off the main road. 
and we walked down to the stones. They don't let you in the stone circle itself. That's all protected, but you can walk on the path alongside. And we literally had, as you can see in that picture, that sort of sunset view, the, the last of the orange glow coming across with the you know sky going from blue into black. And above the stone circle, above this, whatever it is, 5,000-year-old ancient monuments, you had Venus, Saturn, Jupiter, all arranged in a line with the crescent moon as well. And you can, you can see the line of the ecliptic, you know, the line that the, the planets and the moon and the sun all follow in the sky. And it was absolutely beautiful. Not a soul there. No one was there. We just had the sheep for company uh, <laughs> and looking over this ancient site and the wind was howling across the plain. It was only, must have been around freezing. Uh, so okay. I've noted two Canadians, that's positively tropical. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but the windchill was, wind was strong, so I can understand why no one was around. But, yeah, beautiful, beautiful. And the sky slowly got darker. They got lower and lower. And so we moved down a bit further, down to where there's a, a, the stone in the second picture, the darker picture. Yep. is That's the stone they line up for the summer solstice when you get all oh, the okay. people go out there to watch the sunrise in midsummer. And you can just see Venus just literally setting above above the stone circle venus is the one just just you can just see but it was really spectacular and that's just with a static camera no tracking you know camera oh. wide angle lens and i took one long exposure to get the foreground and then one shorter exposure to get the, the, the stars in because of course with that bright moonlight in it, it doesn't half sort of dazzle everything but yeah just blended them together and then yeah i got this picture of of, of you know the memory of this wonderful site yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful photo. One thing I like about this time of the year when you have an opportunity for a photo like this of a, of a number of solar system objects is, uh, and it's more present, I think, in the photo um, that's closer to sunset, is that like the moon kind of at the top of that arc, you know, it really curves from the moon kind of downward. Um, and, you know, at other points in the year, I find that that ecliptic line is just, it, it appears more straight. Uh, but in the winter, you, you see a little bit more of that arc, which is pretty cool. Mm. That was beautiful. And I'm, I was really hoping we'd have some clear skies next week because, of course, Comet Leonard will be in that scene as well uh, in the evening sky. But I don't know our weather forecast and what the weather's like for you guys, but we've now gone very wet and you know, damp and cloudy and grey. So I'm not keeping much hope alive, but fingers crossed. Yeah. Have you seen the comet yet? Nope, not at all. I, ca I can't do mornings. I can't do five in the morning to get up and see it. So I, I would have done if it was like Comet Neowise that we had last summer, yeah. or the summer before last. But no, I haven't done it yet. And uh, I, the pictures online look amazing. Did you see it when it went past M3, the globular cluster M3? No. So we had, we had a lot of cloud. Um, right at that time. And so it was about, I think it was about another day or two, I guess it was two, two days later, two mornings later that I get out and observed it. So I, I couldn't quite get M3 and, and the comet together, but uh, I was able to, to see the comet that, uh, that morning. And, and I was able to, to get out the other morning and, and take a look, uh, I guess on, I guess it was just yesterday morning. I'm a bit, uh, a bit confused on the days and times because I've been getting up in the mornings and, and going out, even if it hasn't been that great and trying to get some views. So I've been able to get a, a couple of views of it now. But yeah, yeah, I tried, uh, I tried last night in the evening, right around sunset and we have a real narrow window. Um, you know, it, like our sunset time is right around 5 PM local time here, just a bit before that. But the comet is pretty much gone by around 6.30 or, or actually maybe even a little bit earlier than that. 
And uh, I just couldn't get it in the twilight. Um, you know, the, the horizon glow from the setting sun was, was too strong and, and I was unable to observe it. Now, with a caveat that I wasn't able to stay until like the very last kind of minute, which would have been the darkest point, but uh, I'm not sure that, it's, uh, that it was possible. Now, I was also using 12 by 36 binoculars, so perhaps some more aperture would have helped, but even then, I, I don't think it would have been, uh, you know, a very good observation it probably would have been more just like detecting it in my opinion. Yes. Yeah, so Lawrence, the chap I went up to, to Stonehenge with, he's seen it in his 10 by fifties. I think they were, but he said he found Arcturus, he found Messier three M three. And that just looks like a little smudge. And he said there was another smudge alongside it. So I don't think it's, it's nothing like we had with Neo wise, but it's yeah, definitely a bright, bright binocular object, but not much more than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just trying to look for my. I did a. I sent a photo off to the uh, to one of the lists that I'm on here, but uh, I'll I'll see if I can pull it up and uh, and put it in our show notes. You can you can take a look and then uh, and then see what uh, what I was able to get there. So if you folks can just give me 30 seconds, I'll I'll try to get that up. Sure, sure. Maybe maybe I'll just fast forward a little bit here. We we did jot down a, a few notes of of things that we could maybe talk about and. Mark, when you were on last time, you mentioned your APM uh, binocular telescope, and um, I'm, I'm starting to really consider one of those in the new year. Um, I'm, I'm very intrigued, you know, in observing with both eyes, and, and I think a binocular telescope is is the supreme way to do that rather than a bino viewer. And uh, I noticed that you have the 100 millimeter APM bino uh, bin- binocular telescope with that APM <laughs> center mount. And just curious, how, how do you like that mount? Is, is it vibration free or what is the dampening time like? And, and what's the motion like with that mount? Yeah, it's a good. Well, let's, let's go back then. So I like those binoculars, but I've got the old style. These are, I don't know, more than, more than 10 years old. Uh, pair of binoculars. Am I coming through? Okay, I've yep. just got a warning. My yep. internet's so unstable. No, you sound okay. okay. Brilliant. So, um, yeah, so I have the old style of APM binocular and the new style, the one that comes out now, the one you can buy off the shelf now. Uh, there's another chap in the club who's got a, got a pair of the 100 millimeters binoculars and you can definitely see the increase in image quality from my old pair, 10 years, 10 years old, mm-hmm. and his new pair. You know, so for example, if I look at Jupiter... I get a lot of chromatic aberration. You can see that the light streaming off from the prisms inside the binoculars. So looking at a bright star isn't so good, but on Dave's pair, you can really see the the increase in image quality. So they're a bit of a one-trick pony in that they're good for visual deep sky observing of, you know, star fields, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas the new pair, they're definitely much better for, for you know, as, a, as an all-rounder. But on that mount with a big sturdy tripod, they're, they're good. It's, it, it, you know, you're not, doing high resolution, you know, planetary imaging, you're not down at sub pixel art second tracking. Mm-hmm. So I find it works, it works just fine, you know, for low powers, you know, 20, 30, 40 times power. I, I don't have a problem with it. I've got it on a big, I bought a secondhand Manfrotto tripod off eBay and that has the rising central column mm-hmm. because of course, when you're looking at the horizon or eyepieces of whatever heights, but if you rotate then up to the Zenith, your eyepiece has now dropped down in height so having that rising central column is really useful and it's not uh, the binoculars and mount aren't too heavy for that because i think that's the same 
tripod that we have, Sheen, isn't it? No, this one's much more robust than. Oh, is I it? Have. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. Mark, yeah I think Mark, wanna, you're you using the travel across the fields with this one. It's it's huge. It's the one six one Mark Two B. and it's really quite a beast. It's definitely not a portable mount. Yeah, yeah, it, it's quite a bit beefier than what we have, Chris, and I, and um, I think its load capacity is like three times what what ours is. So yeah, from memory, it's something like ten kilos, something like that, isn't it? Forty. I'm looking it up. Forty four pounds. Yeah, yeah, it looks like a really nice tripod. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't afford a new one, so I, that's why I went second hand, and yeah, it works really well. Seven. And that's nice is you can raise and lower it, raise and lower the eyepieces, you know, so if I'm looking up at the Zenith, I can yeah do that. If I'm looking at the horizon, you just drop the, drop the binoculars down. Nice. Nice. So, so, yeah, can... so I've got the telescope. Yeah. I've got the Celestron C11, which also has a binary viewer now. And I have that on the pier alongside me. And then I think, oh, I can chill out with the binoculars for a bit and, so the C11, I can't, you know, open clusters, the the Pleiades, the, you know, all that sort of stuff. I can't, well, I can see them in the C11, the Celestron C11. But of course, with the telescope, you're looking through the clusters, the, the field of view is too small. So then, of course, you just switch across to the binoculars alongside. So you get the best of both worlds if you've got the big telescope and the binoculars. Mm -hmm. Have you compared the kind of the, I guess, the, the just the view through the 100 millimeter binoculars versus like a, you know, 120 millimeter mono telescope. Um, I'm kind of curious about the, just the image presentation. Um, I, I was reading some stuff on cloudy nights. I forget who posted it, but um, the, the astronomer that was, that he, he posted this kind of in-depth review and more his experiences. He has a uh, 18 inch binoscope. It's uh, two Dobsonians. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. Huge. And uh, he he said that his 18-inch binoscope is basically on par with a 25-inch monoscope is kind of, you know, what he found in just field testing and and not just with his eyes, but with other eyes. So I'm just curious if you've uh, had the opportunity to kind of do some comparisons like that. And if so, just what your results were. No, I've not done a, a detailed sort of side-by-side -side comparison, but my okay. own findings are that it is a really nice comfortable way to observe mm -hmm. but although you have four inches of light going into each eye you don't have and that that equates to whatever it is a six inch you know aperture in terms of surface area but of course you don't increase say the resolution so if you're looking at the moon you're not going to be able to see finer details but what it does mean is that when you're looking at a very dim extended object so for example if i'm looking at the orion nebula because you've got signal going into both of your eyes now, that very faint low surface brightness does become brighter than having, you know, a larger single telescope. And mm -hmm. I also find that when, of course, you're using both eyes, that's far more comfortable, means you can observe for longer, it's much more relaxing. And that too also helps you bring out finer details. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I'm, I'm really curious about the Bino telescope, because my playing around with a Bino viewer this past year, that's probably my greatest takeaway is that I, I could have my eyes looking at whatever through the telescope for, you know, really hours without having to take a break if I wanted to, whereas mono viewing you know, there's a point where you just have to take your eye away from the eyepiece and, and kind of 
you know, let, let your squinting eye recover because it does, it does kind of fatigue you after a little while. And, uh, it is just so much more comfortable with two eyes. Yeah. Oh, I bought something else. Actually, you'd be interested in as well. Have you heard of a power switch? Oh yeah. Uh, the Dankmeyer power switch. So I bought one, but not a Dankmeyer one. It's okay. the, it's called earth win. And I okay. picked it up secondhand, uh, for 150 American dollars, us dollars. And it's, so basically, you, if you're using your binary viewer straight through, um, you know, you're whatever the, the magnification is, but you can slide different lenses in. So I can go from 0.7 times, so a reduction, mm-hmm. 0.7 times, one times, or two times, just by sliding different lenses in front of the binary viewer. But you've got to refocus. It's not par focal. Mm-hmm. But what it does mean is I'm not swapping eyepieces back and forth. So yeah. I used it the other night and I was, you know, going around deep sky objects and whatever it was, I don't know, about midnight, uh, Ryan Nebula was nice and high. And I thought, right, I'm going to go that. And if, I, if I'm at two times power, you know, I'm looking inside the trapezium. If I'm at one times power, I'm getting, you know, a, a detailed view of the central area. And if you go out to 0.7 times or 0.66, of course, you've got the whole field of view and it's just absolutely wonderful. And then, of course, you can slide different filters in. So you can have the naked view, i.e. no filter, uh, and I've got a UHC filter, and then I can push that across as well. And then I got, oh, there's the filtered view. And it was just wonderful because you don't you have you don't have this downside now of having to, you know, swap eyepieces over and change filters and then trying to unscrew them in the dark and not drop them in the mud. So it is an absolute you know game changer to the way I observe now with that with that binary view. Thoroughly recommend it. Oh yeah. Yeah. They, um, so the, the, the first go around that I had with the Bino viewer, it had the power switch and, uh, yeah, it, um, it is a, a just such a wonderful system and, and you know, cause swapping one eyepiece is kind of a pain swapping two eyepieces is a real pain. And, and to get around that is, uh, is really quite nice. Um, actually, and with the current Bino viewer that I have, it did come with a power switch. I just haven't used it really i haven't installed it so i'll have to get on that and uh oh, it is one because you, you can you can switch to low power mm-hmm. use that for your wide angle view use it to find and center things and then switch back to the high power view to actually you know inspect and you know study details and objects yeah for sure for sure and all without changing your eyepieces <laughs> yeah that that is very appealing uh chris were you able to find those images yeah, I think I got the, uh, can you guys see the comet image? Uh, let me see. Here. Oh, look at that. Okay, yeah, yeah. Sharing, sharing the screen now. Anyway, that that's my uh, sketch. I was I was a little bit chilly when I made that. Uh, it was minus uh, 18. Um, so I, I made it as I was warming up. I'll put it that way. But it was, I was observing it. And then as soon as I finished observing it, I, I got somewhere warm and, uh, and made that sketch uh, about maybe 20 minutes after I, I did that. So uh, the tail on on Common Leonard, is, as I was seeing it, was about a degree and a half long. Um, and it's very, very faint, like very ethereal. Like I couldn't, like this is at a magnitude six point something sky. We had some thin cloud, but this was sort of through a break in the in the uh, cloud bands we had. And you, you could see the tail uh, in the telescope. I don't think we could see it in the binoculars. You could see the head in the binoculars, no problem, the 50 millimeter binoculars we had, but, uh, but that tail was very faint. And then the, the thing that, that I was able to see with the, with the comet was that it has sort of this uh, fan shape 
uh, to the to the coma, and then a little bright area just just after that, and uh, that's not showing up in the in the photos that I've seen as well, anyway. So anyway, that that's kind of what it looks like through uh, through a telescope or a little telescope, my hundred millimeter. So it sounds like it's worth going out to hunt for it, then. So that's I love that sketch. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's kind of neat. Yeah, like I said, I was I was uh, pretty cold when I was making that, so it's, it might not be as as a steady hand as I would uh, typically have. So, anyway, yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, that that's sort of my observation on that. But one thing I wanted to to chat with you about, uh, Mark, if, if we're if we're okay to move on uh, from the binocular telescope. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I'm, far away. I'm, yeah. Is the is the Victoria refractor, Victorian refractor that you were uh, observing in, in one of your videos. And, uh, so I'd watched some of your videos before we chatted the last time. And, uh, I've watched several more since. And I think the first video I watched after we spoke was this, uh, 10 inch F15. Um, I think it's a Thomas cook refractor that you, you had spent a night observing through. And, and I was just like, Oh, I wish I'd seen this video before we talked because, just wanted to ask what it was like observing through that telescope and uh, just like that general experience. I mean, there is a video out on it, but uh, um, you're kind of giving some of your impressions at that time. But uh, I think that that is really a unique observing experience. So, so what was it like to observe through that instrument? Oh, it was absolutely wonderful. It was this beautiful Victorian you know, brass tube telescope in this huge, huge, huge dome. And it's at a private school. Um, up near Marlborough, uh, okay. which is a, a town in town in southern England, and it's at, at it's at the private boarding school, and they bought it from Oxford University, oh years ago, where to sort of languished as all the more you know research moved on from sort of visual observing, and so the, a teacher back in the day had relocated it, and you know installed it at this telescope, and I think it is the world's oldest computer controlled telescope because it has a modern, you know, um, go-to drive system on top of it. But of course, all the clutches and the mechanism and the mount is, you know, built in the 18, late 1800s. Wow. And uh, I was hosted by a chap called Gavin James, who has, he has the dream job. If you ever wanted a dream job as an astronomer, it's his job, because he runs this observatory for, you know, the, the students, for the children at the school. And they come up and do their... Uh, secondary school exams, the GCSE exams, using this th- this telescope, and they have uh, you can become a friend. It's called the Blackett Observatory, and they're online if you if you look up Blackett's Observatory, and they have the have these open evenings, and I managed to you know ask if I could come up and have a look around and, and film. And we started off. What did we look at? We looked at the Andromeda Galaxy, which, of course, at F15, you're only looking really at the core of it. We looked at Messier 15, Almac, the double star, with Jupiter, Saturn. So we had a really nice visual tour, and the the views are absolutely spectacular. But of course, at F15, you're you're generally quite high powered. So we had a, a big, what's it, 41 millimeter Nagler. That was the low power eyepiece. Wow. Um, I can't do the mass, but it was still quite a high magnification, but really critical. I mean, those double stars, which is what the telescope was designed to do. It was a double star research telescope back in back in the day. Oh, wow. Absolutely beautiful. And on these grounds in southern England, there you've got the pictures there on their website. Beautiful brass uh, telescope, huge, huge, huge mount. And you need a stepladder to get up to the eyepiece because, of course, you look straight through it. So when you're looking at, say, Saturn, low down on the horizon, as it is for us in the UK, 
course, you've got to go up the stepladder, up the Widowmaker, they call this, up to the eyepiece. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was just wonderful. And then we swapped over. We put the camera. Uh, we put my high-speed planetary camera instead of the eyepiece. And we photographed Jupiter uh, as well and, and Saturn. We dialed in. Well, that was my photograph. If you go back up. Oh, really? Yeah. Here? I, I took that photograph. Uh, that's amazing. On the eyepiece. Yeah. Oh, wow. So they have, and, that's up on their website now. <laughs> yeah. So if you, if you can just see bottom left, that sort of oak paneling, that's the computer control system. <laughs> and because it's an old Victorian telescope, it has to go in this oak paneled case on, on the steel pier. Uh, but it's got, yeah, it's got a modern 20 foot. So Gavin would look online, you know, what are the coordinates of Saturn, their right ascension and declination. He types that into the computer and the telescope off it, off it goes towards it controlled on that, on that system. That's, that's almost, uh, it's sort of in a way, like almost steampunk that you have this, you know, Victorian refractor, 10 inches, everything is, is it, do you say it's brass? Cause yeah, it's, it's brass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's brass has like or brass as I would say it. Yeah, the, the old timey. Uh, it's not a fish, right? Um, it has like the you know the old timey cogs and spokes and wheels and everything, and then it's computer controlled. That's just brilliant. Oh, and it had there's one bit in the video as we get towards the end, which there's a little aperture, little port on the side of the telescope near the finder scope. There's a little gap, and you pull this lever, and the gap opens. This little two inch whatever diameter hole appears on the side. And that was for back in the day, you would then hold your smoked lantern up to the this port so that you could see the reticle to do your double star measurements. Oh wow. Because of course they didn't have LEDs, you didn't have your little mm. reticle eyepiece. You had to hold your smoke lantern on, on the tube. Wow. Wow. This wow. is incredible. The the video was just phenomenal to me. Like I have such a fascination with these, you know, old telescopes and, and something like this is just, I can't even put words to it. How amazing uh, I find this. <laughs> it's just oh, so it cool. wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And the funny thing, because we had this beautiful, it's a late summer, I can't remember what September, October time. And Gavin, who lives in Marlborough, he's got his own garden observatory and he's got it all optimized, uh, optimized for, remote observing so we were up at the observatory you know observing you know jupiter saturn m15 and double stars and he was then controlling his telescope back in his garden and he was imaging at the same time wow well that's awesome so i I couldn't help but sorry go on oh no go ahead and we'll oh i was gonna say but if you go back to those old pictures you can just see how big that telescope i mean it's meters long and meters up in the air as well you know you need a ladder just to get up to it and I can't help but thinking my little, you know, Celestron C11, the 11-inch uh, schmidt cassegrain is actually a bigger telescope, uh, but it's only whatever it is, two or three feet long. So my telescope is actually bigger, uh, but much more portable. So it is, it is a permanent setup on a massive mount. So it's completely impractical, but absolutely wonderful. Just out of curiosity, it's like, you know, thinking about that comparison, your, your 11 inch is, is uh, an inch in aperture bigger, but it has a central obstruction. And I know you were, you've only spent like a night or so or whatever it's been on, on this, this large refractor, but I wonder like if, if the central obstruction kind of, um, you know, sort of, you know, almost, almost as a bit of an equalizer in that, like how, how were the views of the planet sort of compared to, uh, to your 11 inch scope? 
Yes, yeah, so the what you do get is a lot of chromatic or not a lot. So that's not fair. There is some chromatic aberration. That's why they have to make these telescopes so long, just to to try and reduce that false color, that that red and blue in the spectrum from coming through the refractor lens. But what you could do, of course, was your stars would go to an absolute pinpoint, absolute you know pinprick of light. There was none of this bloated star that I can sometimes see on the C11. Absolutely. Mm. And we were lucky with the seeing. The seeing was really good as well, that, or really good for England anyway that night. So we had relatively stable air, beautiful old, you know, refractor lenses, wonderful Cook objective, 10-inch refractor, no central obstruction. So you're absolutely right. It was absolutely wonderful. Really enjoyed it. And Gavin looked after me really well. And it was just brilliant because, of course, he was imaging in his own telescope in the garden at the same time. Wow. That is, that's just so cool to think about, about looking through a telescope like that. And I saw like it, it sort of took, uh, you know, two folks and a child to kind of run it. Cause somebody had to, you know, be sort of slewing the telescope and, and somebody else had to be moving the dome. I think at one point you hopped in and had to move the dome while he was yes. slewing. And, <laughs> and of course it's not quite round, you know, it's this big steel structure. So it's not quite round. So you get bits where you can twiddle the. The, the, this big handle, it's big, like sort of almost naval engineering. And then you get to a bit where it sticks and you've really got to put your back in and come on, come on. And then it goes over that little hump and then it starts moving again. So it's an all body workout as well. So, so do push ups before we, we yeah, make no. a trip. Well, don't do any push ups, you know, otherwise you'd be tired beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of the things I really enjoyed about doing this sort of refreshing views, this hobby, this YouTube channel is, you know, here I am chatting to you guys in Canada. You know, I've been up to this observatory as well. So I get to meet you know, people and chat with people. It's been really good fun. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. That is so cool. This is definitely on my list now. Um, my wife wants to, we, so we did a trip to London in 2017, London and Edinburgh is, is primarily where we, uh, toured. Um, however, we want to come back and we're loosely planning a trip, no dates, but this is now on the list of one of our stops for sure. We'll, we'll swing by Stonehenge, Shane, and we'll, we'll come, we'll look after you. That'd be lovely to have you here. <laughs> that would be great. I'm, I'm not joking. Do, do do that. That would be really good. Absolutely. I mean, don't come now because I, I presume you're watching the news. I wouldn't recommend traveling, international yeah, travel at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Well, We'll, we'll wait for that stuff to settle down for sure. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, this is so exciting. And to, to have, uh, you know, one of the sad parts about, you know, a story like this is sometimes these old telescopes either get completely decommissioned and torn down or left in such a state of disrepair that, you know, they're pretty much useless. And, and the fact that this old telescope is still collecting light and being used regularly is just uh, an outstanding story. Yeah, so there's two parts. It's that it's used, you know, for the school students for their GCSE astronomies. It's used for A-level students for research projects as well. You know, this is school older school children, uh, and then there's also the friends of the Blackett's Observatory, and they have open evenings, and we're supposed to go up on Monday and see the Geminids, but it doesn't look like it's going to be clear. So yeah, it's um, it's still an active observatory. Well, that's wonderful. Cool. Uh, did you have another topic you wanted to uh, touch on, Shane? Uh, no, I think the only one that I wrote down was the Bino telescope, which we uh, we already touched on. All right. Maybe we can uh, talk a bit about your observatory next, because okay, I sort yeah, of, far away. <laughs> I kind of peppered you with emails after, uh, after our last conversation. Um, because, uh, you know, I've been kind of uh, rolling around the, the idea of, uh, of maybe getting a, a telescope shelter. I don't think it'll be anything um, like what you, you have there in, 
in your what we call a backyard, but but you folks call it a bit more eloquently a back garden. Can can you tell us sort of about the the size and some of the special features uh, of your observatory? It's a it's a wooden structure, right? Maybe we should start with sort of the basic um, structure and, and design first, because a lot of the time when people think of observatory, they think of like that white dome sitting on top of a mountain peak somewhere. This is not that, but it's uh, just as cool. So yeah, so I I've always wanted my own observatory so the hassle is of course you you've been at work all day you come home have dinner time with the family time with the kids and it gets to whatever time it is and you want to go and set up and in the olden days i had to roll out my extension cable set the mount up put the tube on top of the mount get my accessories get a chair and then of course it would cloud over you think oh for god's sake and you've got to go and pack it all away again you've got to take the tube off put that down get the mount get the pack roll up the extension cable and it was a real it would put me off going out to observe if I was tired, if the weather wasn't necessarily the best. And I was working away a few years ago. I was, I was weekend commuting. And I thought, right, this is the time. We've got a little bit of money. I'm going to, and I paid for, to have mine built. Um, you could easily make this yourself if you wanted something simpler. And I wanted, you know, this observatory was going to, you know, last me out the years. And so I contacted, there's a UK company called UK Home Observatories. And they came some months later and built on, I had to level the land and I have two parts to it. So I have a, it looks like a garden shed. And the first part is the warm room. So that has a chair and a table and a home office in there. And the, you've got the observatory itself with a pier, with the telescope in. And again, it's in the shed, but the, sh- the roof of the shed rolls over the top of the office. So I go out there with my keys. I, it takes me longer now to make a cup of tea, find my winter coat than it does to set up. You know, so I get my keys, make a cup of tea, put my coat on, go outside to the observatory, unlock it, unlatch the roof. And I literally push the roof back on its rails and that exposes the telescope sitting on its pier, power it on, line up with what I want to look at and I'm observing. I mean, it's less, you know, the longest part of that process is waiting for the kettle to boil. <laughs> That's amazing. And then, of course, what's nice is that when it's like two or three in the morning, when you're tired and you're ready to go to bed, is you think, well, I'll pack up now, roll the roof back, latch it down, dust covers on, I'll come back in the morning, I'll tidy the rest of it away, and I'll just go to bed. Nice. It and is absolutely, it's is a complete game changer, because when you are tired, and when you are ready to, you know, you think, oh, do I really want to go? I'll just potter out for a bit. And I find three hours have gone because now once you're outside, you carry on observing. It is really, I, I can't imagine now not having an observatory. And you know, when people on the forums write about, you know, what's your ideal grab and go? I think, well, I grab my keys and I go out to the observatory now. <laughs> the keys are the grab and go. Yeah, that's all you need because it's already set up. Yeah, that's great. That is really good. And I, and- I mean... You, you can make it a lot. I mean, mine wasn't a cheap solution, but then I paid extra to have, you know, insulation built in. So it's more of a log cabin, my observatory. And it's on big oak sleepers, treated oak sleepers. And when I had it built, I said to the guy, you know, well, how long do oak sleepers last? And he goes, oh, anywhere between 25 and 50 years. And I thought, well, I might not be observing still in 50 years time. So this will outlive <laughs> me then. It's a beautiful observatory. It's one of the nicer backyard observatories that I've seen. I, yeah. I think it's and it's great. really good. I was number 84 on their invoice and they said of course you know they built their first one and they learned a few tricks they built the next one learned a few tricks and he said we've had 83 other observatories to practice on and refine 
before we get to you. So if I built mine, of course, you think, oh, if only I built it like this, or next time I'll have to do it like that. But of course, you're not going to do it next time because you've already built it. So it was really good. It was worth every penny. Because wow. I, I think it even has like a uh, like the uh, gunnels or the uh, uh, what are the water collectors around the the edge of the roof, and then the down. Oh, the guttering. So, yeah, it it all kind of like moves together. Like when you roll it off, I thought that was pretty slick. <laughs> pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah, and then so, as well, well, my wife's quite a keen gardener, and of course, when in the. Ooh, I think we had a Sorry, I think we used, my internet must be clicking out again. Did I speak yes. over you? No, go ahead. You were saying your wife is a keen guard. My wife's quite a keen. Yeah, sorry about that. My internet's obviously playing up a bit. You have to edit this bit out. So, yeah, so she's a keen gardener. And of course, in the summer, we may go several weeks without raining. So she's put alongside all the guttering, has got all the water collection points so we can then keep the garden healthy in the summer. Cool. And I imagine the observatory uh, also really helps to block with the wind, like when you're when you're trying to set up and uh, and observe, and then you're exposed in that night air, and that wind is kind of gradually uh, pulling the heat out of you. I, I imagine that that's one of the one of the big benefits to the setup you have there. Yeah, yeah, so you're absolutely right. So you're you're relatively weatherproof. So the wind's out because, of course, you've got the high sides. You still get the dew, unfortunately, because that's the you know, nature of the bees being out under that dark sky. But I preferred, well, there was two reasons why I went for the roll-off roof rather than a dome. The first one was I didn't want to attract attention for it. So I didn't want to have a big white dome in the garden. I didn't want any unwanted, you know, visitors, people coming around to have a look at it, you know, in the dark. So I didn't, it just looks like a garden shed or garden log cabin. And the other thing as well, I quite enjoy my, planetary observing lunar and planetary observing I, lo- I love looking at the solar system stuff and the problem is that if you have a slit through the roof you know as you would do for a dome is that you if it's been a nice warm sunny day you'll get the the interior wall heat up you then open the dome open up the slit and the warm air all goes out through the slit which of course is what you're looking at so you can actually have quite poor seeing through a dome slit, which is why I wanted to have the roof rolling off. So at least um, it all equalizes, it all gets to thermal equilibrium. Cool. Very cool. Um, you know, it was interesting. And of course, uh, the other thing as well is, but <laughs> I know we have, a, we have a delay, but, uh, but yeah, c- carry on with that thought and then uh, we'll get to my question. Oh, but your pardon. So the other thing as well, of course, was that you can, if you're in the dome and you saw that picture of the Victorian refractor earlier, is you get a very limited sky window. You can't really see what's going on. But I've been sitting out there, say I've been looking at Jupiter through the telescope or imaging the moon. But then I've seen meteors going overhead as well because, you know, you're out, still out under the stars. Whereas if you're in a dome, you don't have that full sky view. Hmm. Very cool. So... I was uh, yeah, just going to ask you like a couple more questions about uh, about the observatory. So one thing I I noticed is that uh, you had uh, picked a spot like you you sent uh, you sent that that video to us and it showed that uh, looks like you're sort of at the at at the lower end of a hill in your garden. And then uh, the other thing that that interested me was that the original telescope you had in there it looked like it was uh, a fourteen inch. Uh, trust tube Dodsonian, and then you switch to the the 11 inch uh, Schmidt Castle Green. So I wonder if you can talk about 
the location that you chose and about the instrument that you uh, that you end up uh, picking for for the observatory and why you switched instruments out. Yeah, of course. So I when we moved here, I tried, uh, and that was you know nearly ten years ago now. I used to observe at a number of spaces, you know, outside the house, front of the house, top of the garden, bottom of the garden, and it was this real trade off between what's the darkest spot to observe because there's this nice little bit sheltered by the trees, sheltered by you know the the back of the garage. And that's the darkest spot in my garden because I can't see any of the neighbor's lights and I can't see any street lights. But as you say, where our garden's on the side of a hill. So if I go further up the hill, more and more houses come into view, more and more street lights come into view, just local lights. You know, not, light pollution is not too bad here. And so, yeah, so it was this compromise. And well, do I want a bit more sky? But then, of course, I have a brighter sky. I've got more local light pollution. So that's why I tucked myself in in the corner. Uh, down out of sight of the streetlight, so it's nice and dark down there. But I traded a dark sky for, and and the price of that was losing a little bit of access to the sky. Uh, and what was your other question? Oh, the telescope, wasn't it? So, yep. so I used to have a fourteen-inch Skywatcher, one of the tracking go-to Dobsonians. Oh, okay. And it was lovely. This was a really nice telescope because, of course, you got this nice big fourteen-inch aperture. And it was, I'd went for that size one because it was relatively affordable compared to one of the big, you know, obsession type telescopes. And it was the biggest size telescope that I could observe without needing a ladder. So I had a 14 inch aperture, nice, and which is relatively big. Uh, I didn't need a ladder. It had go-to and tracking. So I could be doing, you know, I could be looking at the moon, looking at all this stuff and brilliant, you know, being able to see all this stuff with this nice big telescope. The problem was, of course, when I put it in the observatory, it couldn't see over the walls. And so I had this big telescope where all I could see was what was directly overhead. What was that? There's that big Leviathan telescope in Ireland that they couldn't tilt, could they? They could only go up and down. With Lord Ross's telescope, they discovered the spiral nature of galaxies. Yeah. But it could only ha- it had a very limited sky window. And that was what my I said, no, I've got this big telescope, I've got this observatory, and I can't see half the sky. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I went for the Schmidt category, and that's why I put a pier in. And then upgraded to the concrete pier. Yeah. Uh, and then I bought a second hand from a chap in the club who was selling it. He had a Celestron C11 and he got into deep sky imaging and he'd done the standard thing of them buying a Schmidt Cassegrain. And then, of course, you're at F10s. So it means you've got long exposures, you know, tracking. So he then piggybacked a small refractor on top and then realized he was using this Celestron C11 as the world's most expensive guide scope while his wide-field telescope was capturing the light above. So I then bought it off him secondhand. Nice. So is it... No, I is it sorry, I was just going to ask, is it a C11 or is it the, or is it the Edge? It's the ordinary. It's the, the ordinary XLT, okay. yeah, the ordinary one. Now, Celestron listening, I am more than happy to upgrade to an Edge. I'm more than happy to upgrade <laughs> to a C14. <laughs> yeah, you never yeah, know. And that's, but that's the problem. So an EQ6 is... Again, it's, it's not a cheap mount, but it's, it was relatively affordable. And I think, well, if I go out to a C14, well, that means I need a bigger mount, you know, it means a new plate. And it, I just thought I'm just going to stick with what I've got. I'm quite happy with an 11. Of course, I'd always want a new more, but if you buy the new telescope, then you've got to buy a new mount. And so you end up in this bit of an arms race. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So one of the other things that uh, that we talked about, or or you'd mentioned that you'd been up to, was uh, was observing uh, Saturn, Jupiter, 
Ceres, Uranus, uh, Neptune, and, and some of their moons. So, um, yeah, I just just curious if you can kind of bring us up to up to speed. Beautiful photo of the moon and, and planets, and uh, sounds like you've actually been uh, taking a look through through the C eleven at the planets as well, or maybe you're using another telescope for those. I no, and that I'll was with up. the C eleven in the garden. So, I built the observatory in 2017 which was just, a, so I love looking at the planet. Well, I love all of astronomy, but I really like looking at the planets. And that was just in time, 2017, for Mars to disappear, Saturn to disappear, Jupiter to disappear. And they've been lost down below the tree line for me for, well, five years, three or four years. And finally, finally, I can just see Saturn briefly in the gap in the trees. Jupiter now clears the trees on the meridian. And I'm like, yes, I can finally see them. So I went out uh, a few weeks ago. And I photographed Saturn, image Saturn at sunset, then had Jupiter when it appeared from behind the trees. We had Jupiter in the great red spot. We then swung over to Neptune and I imaged Neptune again with the telescope. And if you increase the image brightness, the good thing is you've got this blue disc, tiny little blue disc, and it's whatever it is, four, four and a half billion kilometers away. And you've got this little blue disc. And if you look at the photograph of it and then you slide the sliders in, in Photoshop, you can actually then pick out Triton which is, you know, the moon, the moon of Neptune. And it's only something like two or 3,000 kilometers in diameter. So you've got this moon that's near, nearly 3,000 kilometers in diameter, but it's four and a half billion kilometers away. And I find this absolutely staggering as amateur astronomers. We can go out and see this. So after Neptune Triton, it was then over to Uranus. Same thing again. You've got the little disk of the, moon, disk of the planet. Increase the brightness. And again, you pick out four moons. And thank you for the heads up, because it was on one of your earlier podcasts. You mentioned Ceres was going through the high D star cluster. Yeah. So I swung swung across to Ceres, but I was getting a bit tired at this time. So rather than look through the telescope, I actually used the binoculars. used the binoculars we were talking about earlier to sketch that in the notebook. And I made a little time lapse of Ceres as it moved against the background stars in November as it went through the star cluster. And then by that time, the moon was nice and high. So then put the binoculars away and then swung over to the moon, had a look at some of the uh, stuff around Mare Tranquillitatis with the Apollo 11 landing site, some of the riles and cracks in the surface features there. And then the last thing I did, and this is now about two in the morning, was took some pictures with my digital camera. And then what you can do is then stack them together. And if you saturate the color, you can actually reveal the surface geology. And that's the different types of uh, lava flows on the moon, some are rich in titanium, some are rich in aluminium, and they have different reflectivity. So some look blue and some look reddy orange. And again, you can see this in the, in the digital cameras if you enhance the color. Yeah, I saw you did a, you did a recent video on, on bringing the color out uh, you know, from, from the surface of the moon. Um, yeah, it was really interesting. So you get a lot of different colors there, like look like some browns and orange and sort of purple blues. Uh, that sort of thing. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, how you, uh, you know, how, how you, you know, how you took those photos? Like, what's what's involved in taking those kind of images? Yeah, so you need a bright, nice bright moon high up in the sky. Get it above, you know, all the atmosphere. Get it nice and high above the uh, into the sky, and just take. I think I took a stack of five photos, and so not a lot. I could have done more. And then what you do, put those into Photoshop, stack them together, put them into Photoshop. And if you just enhance the color, enhance that saturation of the color, that brings out the different surface chemistry. So you get different color lava flows 
uh, in different color surface minerals and what have you on the lunar surface. And, it, and oh. it's all there. It's not a false color image. It's just a color enhanced image. So it looks like one of those NASA geology maps of the lunar surface. And what I really found interesting was that you can see where different lava flows have mixed together. So you can mm. have a red right next to a blue, and they're, they're indicative then that you've had different flows at different times of the, you know, in the lunar geology. So what phase of the moon would work best for, for doing this? Like, can you do it at a full moon or we, is it best? Yeah, you can do it at any time. Any, it's just obviously you will see less of the moon. So if it's a narrow crescent, you won't get very much, you know, in the field of view simply just because the crescent, but you can do it at any time. I did, mine was a few days after full, if I remember rightly. So it's a pretty gibbous moon. Um, but yeah, you can do it at any phase. Hmm. You just get less and less of the moon in view because obviously as the Terminator moves along. I remember w- one night, and I'm not sure if you've tried to see any of these um, just just with your eye at the telescope, but um, I was observing when I lived in Ontario, I had an apartment with, with a, you know, a little tiny balcony, but I could just barely get my six-inch um, Max Sudoff out there on it. And I pointed it one night at the moon. I was I was bored. It was cold in, in the winter. I thought I'll just throw it out there and and do some casual lunar observing. And I was looking at the moon, and I could I thought I could detect um, you know one of those. I forget which region it was in, but it sort of looked more like purpley or whatever. And I thought, wow, that's really really weird. Um, I must be just like imagining something. And uh, then a buddy of mine phoned me. And, uh, and he was, he was like, are you looking at the moon? I'm like, yeah. And he said, do you, what do you notice? And I said, I noticed this purpley region. I thought I was, you know, uh, you know, kind of, you know, misobserving or, or, you know, something was wrong with me. And he said, no, no, he was seeing it too. And so I wonder if sometimes during certain uh, librations or angles that, that some of those, uh, color features might be, might be visually observable as well. I don't know if you've tried any of that or. No, but I do know there's a chap who lives down the road from us. He's the uh, BAA Lunar Section editor. Oh, okay. He's always he's always uh, asking for observations of transient lunar ph- phenomena. Yeah, which is the stuff that Patrick Moore was investigating back in the 70s and 80s. And there was a belief then that the moon was geologically active. Yeah, and so people were spotting you know surface obscurations, changes in color, and he was very active in in. in capturing those and, and the BAA section are still seeking observations just to try and verify or validate what people saw at a previous lunar cycle with what people are seeing now. Um, so yeah, so people were, were detecting that. I've never seen one myself. So I'm, I must admit to being skeptical. And I do wonder if there's a bit of a, you know, sort of an observer bias that people want to see it, ergo they see it. Um, you know, if people are reporting regularly these, these sort of weird surface colorings, yeah, uh, but now everyone has a camera or you know high-speed camera or digital camera. Um, we don't seem to have any pictures of these transient lunar phenomena. Yeah, yeah. I think I think Patrick Moore, though, I think uh, I think even up to the end, he more or less thought that many many of the craters and most of the craters on the moon were still uh, a result of volcanism. I think he 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 didn't totally buy into the impact theory. <laughs> Yeah, he bat the wrong horse in that race, didn't he? I think so. Yeah, I think so. But uh, you know, not to detract yeah. from from all of all of his lunar observations. But uh, yeah, I, I see that's, that's the, you've got to remember. Of course, he was he wasn't a scientist. He wasn't a professional astronomer. He was right. a presenter. He was an author. He was a popularizer. Yeah, yeah. No, very cool. Very cool. Well, Mark, I think we're we're getting on. I know we had we had another topic to discuss, but I think with the uh, 
we, we only have a few minutes uh, remaining. We try to keep these these under an hour. And uh, I almost feel like our, our other topic um, could take up some some more time, which is the business of of sketching, which uh, which you and I both uh, both do, and uh, so do so do lots of the other observers out there. So maybe we can we can carry that forward into uh, into the new year at some point. Uh, I'm kind of kind of curious about your uh, your technique for uh, you know for for black uh, paper and and white. Uh, pencils. Uh, I'll be curious to find, find that out, but maybe I'll just ask you really quick. So for, for making the uh, white on black sketches, um, what are you using for, for pencils? Are you using pastels or, or what are you using exactly? So this is something that a, there's a lady who lives well up the road from us about an hour's drive away called Mary, Mary McIntyre. And she, she's been teaching me how to do sketching, but this time, as you say, with white pencils on black paper. So it's a rather than the traditional graphite black paper, black pencils on white paper, the more traditional approach. And so I'm using, following her advice then, I use a pastel, no, don't, I use an artist pencil, and that's quite a fainter pencil, and I use that to mark out the stars. So I'm looking at the field of view, and I can see there's a pattern of stars, and this star's above this star, and this star's to the right of it, and you you can lay out the star field. I'll then use a charcoal pencil a white charcoal pencil or a white pastel pencil and then you can then use that to make the brighter stars brighter the fainter stars just mark them in and then you can add you can build up layers of the pastel on the paper and that makes it look this white nebulosity and bring that out so a mixture of pastels and charcoal white charcoals uh, to bring that out and it works really well i'm really enjoying it it's a much more natural looking and you can really increase that dynamic range much more I find than you can with using black pencils, black graphite on, on white paper. Cool. All right. Well, maybe that'll be a bit of a, a preview to, to what we talk about. Uh, you know, maybe we'll catch up in a, in a few more months again. Um, so we should, uh, we should kind of end here unless uh, Shane or, or Mark, unless you guys have something else to add before we sign off. Oh, just thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed chatting. Yeah. And, and I'll just add that um, we will be like Chris and I will be appearing on on your show, Mark, on refreshing views in January. Is it January 15th? Yeah, I think we have, haven't we? Yeah. So we're looking forward to that. It's my turn to make you guys talk this time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm excited for that, too. So, um, yeah, that'll be great. So from England to the Great White North. <laughs> Good stuff. So uh, before we go, though, Mark, can you just tell people how to find you and refreshing views? So, yeah, so I'm on Facebook and Instagram under Mark Radici, um, R-A-D-I-C-E. I also run a YouTube channel called Refreshing Views and a website, refreshingviews.com. Although that's, um, I don't write as much as I should, but I try and publish a video at least every week, uh, which is really capturing what I get up to in the observatory. So it'd be lovely to have you along with us. Yeah, very cool. Well, thanks, Mark. And, and that really meshes well with what we do, we kind of do an episode every week, uh, Shane and I, on kind of what we're doing in our uh, amateur astronomy. So uh, there's like a real, um, you know, uh, sort of natural alignment of of what our what our two uh, missions are here, and and we're all just doing it for fun, folks. So uh, you know, go and go and look up uh, Mark's refreshing views on on YouTube. He's got some really really cool videos of going to star parties and observing through uh, different telescopes and binoculars. And uh, yeah, and if you want, you can also uh, subscribe to our channel. And with that, we'll thank everybody for listening and uh, 
you know, clear skies. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>